Hey, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? I was going to ask you like a really silly question to start with, and now I'm kind of embarrassed after having written it down. What's your favorite collapse sport? Who's my favorite collapse? Yeah, what, give, what gives you collapse direction? All right, so we're very happy to have Lee Phillips with us today. He's a science writer, and we're going to be talking about his previous book, Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts, as well as looking forward to what he's working on in the future. Um, he's got a book coming out next year on, or this year? Correct me if I'm wrong. This year, yeah, so yeah. fall this year. Um, yeah. Over, so. yeah, towards the end of this year, um, about planning, about socialist planning. So really looking forward to that and to talking through a lot of issues with him, trying to understand the contemporary conjuncture, talking about environmentalism and so on. So this is me, Alex Hochuli. We've got, as usual, Phil Cunliffe and George Hoare. Say hi, guys. Hey. That's good. In sync. That's what we want. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, so to get started, um, I found it interesting that uh, Jacobin's front matter on their issue environmentalism recently put it quite explicitly at the beginning, climate change more than any other issue demonstrates the need for socialism. It points to the need for more democratic political control over industry, technology and infrastructure, more conscious intention about how we build our world, why and for whom. So I think that I, I would agree with most of that. Um, and I think it's actually quite a good way of encapsulating what your book about is about, because to me, I found a really fascinating read and one which touches on so many different aspects, not just of environmentalism, but of kind of politics today. Um, and it seems to be a great elaboration of a specifically socialist argument against ecologism, but which at the same time has a great degree of environmental consciousness. So I find it a very sort of credible read as well, because I've um, read a lot of polemics against environmentalism, which seem a little bit too casual in their dismissal of the issues at stake. Um, I mean, would you agree with that kind of as a as a depiction of your book? Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a fair description. Um, I I would agree that I, I mean I I'm I'm very careful to make sure that I do read um, criti uh, critiques of environmentalism and critiques of, of uh, the notion of climate change, and uh, as in fact quite a few. Um, climate scientists are. Um, I'm, I'm not a climate scientist myself, but I work uh, as a science writer at a climate solutions research institute, and um, we we do we are familiar with some of these critiques. And um, um, there are there are terrible ones which are very easy to uh, easy to dismiss, and other ones which are um, at their best moments um, work as in the way that. Sort of ideological or scientific combat should um, take place, which is that um, the the cracks in your own argument are um, are highlighted and and drawn out by your by your critics, and so the, so there's always some interesting stuff there. However, sometimes even the even the the best let's say uh, uh, climate critics still <clears throat> um, unfortunately fall over into uh, a dismissal of what is a genuine problem? So I think a good example of that would be some of Ben Pyle's work, uh, where um, I think some of his criticism of the anti-humanism, the misanthropy, the Malthusianism at the heart of a lot of popular climate politics is not wrong. But then he sometimes dips over into a sort of dismissal that this is, this is even an issue. Um, and uh, I came at it at a very, even though, some of our conclusions might actually be very similar in terms of our critique of the of, of climate politics. Um, I come at it from a perspective of of having written about this from the from the science perspective, and um, ending up very, very, very frustrated with how when um, the science is po sometimes popularizers, whether we're talking about Nomi Klein or Bill McKibben or some of these other uh, activist figures will, you know, hold up the banner of, of scientific consensus on the reality of, of anthropogenic global warming. But when it comes to, say, uh, the capacity for genetic engineering to um, 
uh, to improve humanity and uh, and uh, and the safety of, of 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 GMOs or the the, the fundamental safety of of nuclear power, uh, suddenly they re- retreat to a sort of postmodern. Well, science doesn't know everything. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I think that inconsist- that critique of that inconsistency comes across most yeah. strongly in your arguments against Naomi Klein, which are peppered throughout the book. I think she's probably the the writer to whom you most refer throughout the book, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And I think it works really I, well because she probably does exemplify what you're talking about. That she can sometimes be, you know, a socialist supporting workers, being pro technology, and other times she exemplifies these really hair shirted primitivist backwards sort of yeah. tendencies. It's completely uneven. It's completely uneven, and so the aim of so my aim initially was not to uh, to attack environmentalism or to in, uh, to attack um, uh, green groups, green activist groups or NGOs. But really, it was guys. I'm on your side, but you're really letting the team down. This you just get you're getting so many things wrong here. So that's sort of the initial starting point. But I also kind of wanted to. Um, uh, because there are there is a phenomenon called eco modernism, and I don't consider myself necessarily. I'm very sympathetic to a lot of these people um, who are articulating very similar perspectives um, in terms of uh, presentation of the evidence around int- uh, sustainable intensification of agriculture, um, around defensive nuclear power and hydroelectricity, um, uh, genetic engineering, and so on and so forth. Um, better uh, mechanisms for um, um, uh, you know the avoidance of the naturalistic fallacy within conservation biology and so on and so forth. However, that's sort of where they stop. And and I always was just a socialist, just a plain vanilla socialist, who was noticing um, that a lot of the arguments that in the environment the the environmental movement were making uh, were. Even by people like Naomi Klein, who self-identifies as a socialist, were were real breaches with historic positions on the left. Mm-hmm. What they dismiss as productivism. She's more of a pistachio socialist, I suppose. If you're pistachio one. socialist. <laughs> that is greener. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so initially, I, I wanted to basically um, uh, convince them of where they're going wrong and how they've actually retreated from a lot of historic left-wing positions, sort of naively assuming that once I presented these arguments that they would think, oh, oh, that's a really good point. In the same way that I think, you know, Naomi Klein at her best uh, is very good at um, elucidating the the worst aspects of neoliberal environmentalism and how, say, you know, carbon taxation and Mm -hmm. cap and trade are very limited and may not even actually achieve what they, they, they want to achieve. So I think, so I sort of assumed that I, I could do the same thing, but um, uh, at a deeper level, so she's exposing what a lot of mainstream idea, how a lot of mainstream ideas with environmentalism turn out to actually be neoliberal. And what I wanted to do was to show, again, how some ideas are actually quite neoliberal. So um, anti-consumerism and, and, and degrowth actually end up endorsing a sort of austerity politics and wanted to show how effectively these were the same as Thatcherism. But I also wanted to, uh, to sort of um, trace an intellectual history of, of where these ideas come from. So going beyond just eco-modernist um, uh, factual correction into a sort of, uh, yeah, a, a sort of intellectual history and showing how we can go back to Malthus through some very reactionary ideas at the end of, uh, end of the 19th century, through into uh, interwar um, proto-fascist uh, uh, blood and soil politics, and in America, um, elite cons- where conservationism comes from, um, a very very anti-working class politic. And I wanted to trace how some of those ideas remain consistent uh, within contemporary green ideology. Yeah, and I think it, it does that very successfully. And I think you you kind of set out your stall kind of early on in a quite neat way. I thought um, by saying by by portraying it as a as a dialogue or more as a you know cer- certain statements from different positions so the capitalist says you know there's nothing to worry about there are no limits full steam ahead right. the green lefty says innovation can't save us we have to respect natural limits slam on the brakes and the socialist says no through rational democratic planning we can take charge of the future let's take over the machine not turn it off and i think that's that's very good it's something that i think we'd all in this podcast totally subscribe to it's also something that you know Jacobin editorially seemed to subscribe to um, in the quote that I referred to at the start. 
and yet when you actually get down to the nitty-gritty of it some of these um some of these conflicts emerge even within what seems to be a a progressive modernist position which is serious about ecological risks but um which is you know unapologetically promethean industrialist and so on um so i kind of wanted to get down to the to the sort of nitty-gritty on some of these examples as a way of kind of teasing out where we might stand on the on these questions what your interpretation of it is lee so to get- that, that- Oh, sorry. Sorry. I was just going to talk about that Jacobin issue. Well, you can, yeah, maybe come come on to that. I was just going to give an example to kind of get us get us rolling. Um, and even just to take the example from that Jacobin issue. So, like, within the developing world, you have conflicts even within progressive forces. So, I mean, in Latin America, for example, you have conflicts between nationalized or socialized extractivism and attempts to create sort of post-extractive economies. Um, so in Venezuela, you have the Arco Minero project in the Am- in Amazonian areas um, where there's, again, a, a, a dispute between more green elements of the left and kind of redder or more nationalist elements of the left. Um, in Brazil as well, um, you know, you have... Um, the, the the pre-salt oil fields and other and other forms of of, uh, of mining which over which there's real conflicts some arguing they should leave it in the ground uh, whereas the left nationalists trying to seek to exploit natural resources but making sure that the proceeds go towards social investment and health and education and so on um, and I think there's there's probably recriminations on both sides of you know both sides calling each other right wing <laughs> um, so I mean how do you how do you understand these sort of conflicts it, it, I I think we need to have a very nuanced perspective on this. I, I would start out by um, I really can't stand the the term extractivism. Um, it it I mean the way that Naomi Klein uses it, it's uh, that any sort of large scale removal of resources from the earth. She's basically talking about mining and forestry um, should should be ended. Um, and there's immediate. Uh, a, a problem here, even from her own perspective, because she also simultaneously wants to see uh, a significant build out of high speed rail and public transport and even bicycle use. And one has to wonder exactly where the steel yeah. is going to come from. <laughs> uh, yes. bicycles. Uh, so and, and then, you know, when whenever I've said this to uh, to these people, they will immediately retreat in the face of the immediate uh, ridiculousness of their position, say, oh, well, well, of course we don't mean all mining. So, well, then why did you say all mining? Uh, <laughs> because all that I'm saying is um, mining and other extractive processes don't have to be um, uh, so <clears throat> ecologically disruptive uh, in the sense of undermining ecosystem services upon which, uh, humans either locally or more broadly depend, uh, globally depend upon, uh, depend, um, in Canada mining as re- largely as a result of 150 years of trade union organizing and, uh, pressure from trade unionists and workers, uh, to ensure, um, uh, good regulation. Mining in Canada is an incredibly good job. Um, it, uh, it's not a dangerous job, um, um, through technological advance, there's, there's now very little that actually happens underground. So even that level of, of, of danger has, it's not completely, but, uh, largely subsided. Um, and in terms of environmental protection, we have some very, very strong environmental protections around mining and remediation afterwards. So, um, you know, I, I would say to these people, to the Naomi Kleins and the anti-extractivists, like, well, why aren't we just fighting for that? That that seems mm. a fairly straightforward thing. And encompassed in that also recognizes that there have been in the past and still continue to be the case in, in many developing countries, very, very weak trade unions, very weak uh, environmental and, and, and safety regulations. So, but once you have those, then surely we're okay. And we can now continue to now um, uh, manufacture all the bicycles that you want, Naomi. <laughs> uh, so, yeah no that's sounds... on go on and 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 you put that to them and they say well yes that makes sense well okay well why aren't you saying that from the very beginning there's no need for this um uh this 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 hyperbole um and yeah, yeah it, it seems to abandon any sort of potential for a developmentalist project in the developing Absolutely. world, um, if you're saying just leave it in the ground, um, but doesn't doesn't that doesn't that kind of um, irrationalism 
suggest then that it's about something else. Uh, the unwi- the like you say, I mean, the fact that they're unable to meaningfully defend any coherent position um, suggests then that when they express that feeling, they're giving voice to something else, which isn't really anything which is particularly rationally thought through or even meant perhaps to win in an argument. I mean, would you would you say that's right? Yes, I think uh, there's there's a real romantic thread that runs through all of this. And the minute that you do begin to uh, pick apart some of the, uh, the positions, one of two things will happen. Uh, the Your interlocutor will, uh, if, if they are engaged in good faith debate, they will they tend to retreat somewhat and concede uh, concede points and even uh, uh, transition to a more sort of eco-modernist perspective. And I think most of the people who today identified as eco-modernists are people who previously did embrace these sort of naturalistic, fallacious arguments, uh, anti-humanist arguments, and, and just realize the contradiction. You know, all you have to do is 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 is, is look at the data to, on, on nuclear power and find out that it actually has the lowest number of deaths per terawatt hour, and it's suddenly quite striking. Oh, wow, that's... Um, or you double down on your romanticism. Um, and... Uh, why that is the case? I, I mean, I think part of it comes down to this is this. <clears throat> I think that there's similar reasons for the um, for the dominance of, of sort of extreme identity politics within the academy and within society more broadly and <clears throat> anti free speech perspectives. And <clears throat> and uh, is that um, whether we're talking about the linguistic turn or sort of the po- broader postmodern turn within the academy. And these are the these are the figures uh, that. Um, that shepherd minds and have shepherded minds for the last uh, 20, 30 years, um, there, is, there is a not merely a, uh, a retreat from a demand, uh, intellectual demand for, for em- empirical evidence. It, we, even within the social sciences and the humanities, there's no longer any interest in uh, there's an act of antipathy towards towards evidence. So it, it, in, to, some, to, to, some, uh, to, to some extent, it doesn't even matter. Um, what is really remarkable about many of the um, the critiques of my book has not been, at no point have anybody has anybody um, said, "Well, you're wrong about this this particular fact," or 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 that's not actually true, um, or your logic is unsound. It has all been, "We don't like your style. You've been mean." Um, <laughs> why, did you, why did you call us organic carrot pants? And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's so mean, <laughs> and, you know, honestly, to be fair, um, one of the reasons that, uh, I was quite, quite pointed and, 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 and humorously snarky in the book was that one of the readers that I had of the book, who's, who's also a, a, a socialist, she said to me, it's like, well, because there was a little bit of snark at the beginning and then it sort of went away and it was just sort of a straightforward prose. And she said, "You know, you'll get, you'll get a much bigger readership if you up the snark." And so I did that. Um, and um, she was right. She was right. <laughs> uh, that's what that's what they, the, the critics alighted upon. That's what they focused upon. And I think rather than um, uh, trying to, to undermine that romantic linguistic focus, that that sort of close reading, I suppose, if you will, um, uh, and trying to get them to focus on empirical ed- evidence uh, and the and the soundness of, or unsoundness of an argument. I actually just uh, encouraged them further to go down that, that path. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's, it's something we've talked about on this podcast, and I'm sure, unfortunately, we'll continue to speak about that so many arguments on the left end up being about tone policing, about etiquette, and so on, rather than the substance of the argument. Um, but to step away a little bit from from the details of, of the argument, I think one of the things that we try to do on this podcast as well is try to understand the conjuncture, right? Uh, right. By putting contemporary ideologies and political struggles into wider historical context. And so specifically with regard to environmentalism, I think something that all three of us while reading the book thought, has the green moment passed? Um, because it feels to me a little bit like peak green, if there was such a thing, happened sometime around the late 2000s, around 2007 maybe. And I guess the question is, I mean, one, would you agree with that assessment? And secondly, would you, I mean, if it, if it is true that peak green has passed already, 
um, has maybe a confrontation with the real, with the economic crisis, economic stagnation, maybe divested the left of its more austerian sort of overtones? I don't think so. Uh, I do think it comes in waves. I did absolutely notice uh, just writing about this this topic ahead of uh, the, the Copenhagen uh, UN climate talks, which was supposed to be the big breakthrough. It ended, ended up happening a few years later in Paris instead. But um, in the mid to late 2000s, uh, newspapers, magazines were hiring a lot of environmental journalists and science journalists to uh, to cover this issue, climate policy wonks. And then with the advent of the economic crisis, I, I, I noticed suddenly editors had such less interest because there was just this other thing that was just so manifestly more immediately um, dire. And that was reflected, I think, in, in activist circles as well. It's not, it's not that they stopped caring about the issue, but suddenly something was just... So obviously more important. Um, uh, and I, but I do think it's come back since then. I think as the economy has, has sort of stabilized, even if it may have it stagnated rather than returned to substantial growth, um, uh, the environmental discourse hasn't, hasn't gone away. If anything, it's, it's come back, I think. But uh, I would say that I think if there were a, another severe economic crisis, which is not off the cards, within the next few years, uh, I would imagine that, again, that would uh, be forefronted over uh, over environmental concerns. Yeah, and I mean, I guess a lot of this is, is very kind of dependent on national context. I mean, maybe in Canada, where you are, these arguments have been more uh, current than I think in the UK. I mean, I remember when I used to live there in the late 2000s, you couldn't move for sort of environmental arguments. Everything almost it was the standard form of justification for any policy almost, um, any sort of political discussion kind of came back to resource limits, various environmental concerns, and then that seemed to die away very quickly. So again, it's maybe that that was my experience of it, but um, but maybe, maybe it, again, it depends on the context. I mean, the, con- the I, contingency you've identified, absolutely, contingency is, is, is absolutely correct. It's certainly much more of a, an alive politic in Western Canada than it is in, in Central Canada. But then, you know, in the UK, I, just the recent uh, the, the discussion around the bans on plastic bags. Um, you know, part of that I, I would suggest is 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 an effort on the part of the May government uh, because it, you know she's floundering, so she's desperate for some topics to distract from the floundering uh, over Brexit and, and the broader economy. Yeah, I think that that's right, and I mean, I, there is a there's an interesting argument. I think we. It'd be nice to kind of pursue this discussion in, in sort of two strands, one talking about kind of environmentalism on the left and the other uh, environmentalism, um, elite establishment environmentalism, because I think they're slightly, maybe they're different things. So, I mean, starting with, I guess, with the left, um, it did seem, and you made reference to this already, that a lot of sort of green campaigners of the 90s and 2000s as activists became anti-austerity or Occupy types in, in yep. the immediate post-crash years. And I remember someone commenting to me at the time, says, you know, doesn't this bring into question their commitment to anti-austerity if they were sort of austerians before that? I mean, how, how do you understand that sort of trajectory? That's one of the core arguments that I make in, in my book. Um, and it's been really hard to get uh, this through to people. Though some people, uh, it, it immediately changes their mind. Uh, uh, there's two aspects to it. One is the uh, the most immediate uh, um, sort of anti broad anti consumers perspective of that that idea that's sort of abroad in the land of we all consume too much. And all you have to, I mean, if you think that you know for the last forty years, most Western workers, and there's all sorts of different ways that this has been measured. Uh, wages have either stagnated or or, or grown very uh, at a very 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 flat rate um, or almost flat rate. Um, how do, how does how does anti-consumerism fit in with that? If you are fighting for workers to earn more, they will therefore they will have more money in their pockets. And what are they going to do with that money? They're going to spend it on more stuff. Now, you can absolutely have a conversation about whether the stuff that they are buying is, is, is good stuff. And I would sort of contest some of the, uh, the more middle-class leanings uh, favoring um, 
you know, hand-carved uh, train sets from uh, uh, over 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 uh, Barbies. Uh, but nevertheless. Um, that's a conversation about what we produce as opposed to uh, any sort of limitation on, on more production or uh, workers consuming more. Um, the, but a lot of, a lot of people, when you're confronted with, uh, when you confront them with this, this, this inescapable contradiction that you are simultaneously, uh, if you're campaigning in Occupy or uh, in, 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 in the squares movement in Spain for, for workers to have more money you, you can't at the same time have an anti-consumerist perspective. You, they're fundamental. They're, they're mutually exclusive ideas. Yeah. Um, and some people immediately get it, and and they will just junk their anti-consumerism. They, um, other ones just continue along a, a rigid path. Of, but but that doesn't make any sense because I'm against austerities. But yeah, you're and not it- getting fiction. They just can, and this happens over and over again. Just even a few days ago on 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 Twitter, I mistakenly I, I got into an argument about degrowth, which is just sort of anti-consumerism writ large. Um, and uh, I was trying to explain in in the limited characters that you have on Twitter, obviously, um, how the, the same argument. Um, and the response from my degrowth interlocutors was, "But we're opposed to austerity." <laughs> that doesn't. You, I, I yeah. think you're. I believe you. I believe that you genuinely think austerity is bad. But by being in favor of degrowth and anti-consumerism, there's a fundamental contradiction there that you just haven't realized. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the kind of degree of redistribution necessary, but within a degrowth, I mean, I just think it's sort of the most sort of utopian form of politics, really, to, to imagine that you can have widespread dis- redistribution um, so that you know, some consume less, but the majority consume more in a, in a context of stagnation or degrowth. I mean, I just, I don't really see how that argument works. Branko Milanovic, the, uh, the former IMF economist, um, uh, you know, he's, he's been one of the best writers on inequality in, in recent years. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and he just, did, he did a blog post a few weeks ago, uh, taking the degrowth argument seriously saying, well, what would this actually mean? And it'll actually, actually hang some numbers on it. I mean, I, 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 I critique it from a sort of philosophical level, whereas he actually just went in like, okay, so what would that mean? Like, what would that look like? And if uh, all of the annual increase in wealth in the world were perfectly redistributed amongst the you know close to seven billion people, um, uh, so taking into account uh, income but also other forms of of of, of wealth, um, perfectly distributed, how much would that be? And he the the number he came up with was it would be five thousand five hundred dollars and change for every human on the planet and immediately you begin to see oh, so this is now so all of the all so the argument that the degree degrowth people say is like but we, we are saying that working people can earn more it's just that the wealthy will earn less and you what if you do achieve that perfect inequality you immediately see it's this this global equality of of, of scarcity of uh, global quality of poverty and that we desperately need um, a, a, a continued significant increase in in economic growth for everybody in the world to have a standard of living that um, that that is. I, I hate to use the word Western standard of living because, of course, there's you know classes within the West, but the, the, we can't even achieve that at the current um, level of, of global wealth. Yeah, and, absolutely. And then, and then one wants, and then more philosophically, one can talk about sort of open-ended growth as. As a uh, as a mechanism of of constantly expanding degrees of freedom for for humans, but yeah, that's no. a uh, just to on the degrowth on the kind of the peak green um, is would you say I mean would you say the fact of your you writing this book um, the kinds of arguments you've engaged with the fact that the book has been um, so popular the fact that the kinds of things that are being published in Jacobin and some of the thinkers that you cite um, the pro Promethean thinkers that you cite in the book uh, do you think that's more evidence perhaps or evidence at all perhaps of the turn on the left away from some of these reactionary eco ideas and a turn back towards some kind of modernist progressivist vision it's I, I do think that uh, something is happening uh, I, I think that the uh, people within the Jacobin let's call it the Jacobin ecosystem I mean Jacobin doesn't really have a uh, a line and that's one of the 
I, I, things that I think I really like about Jacobin uh, is that it uh, it lets a hundred flowers bloom. So it will publish, and it's you know some of the the people on the editorial board very much take a a modernist, a Promethean, um, um, you know, classically Marxist perspective on on an you know open ended production, but are at the same time uh, concerned about legitimate issues such as uh, such as climate change um, and biodiversity loss. <clears throat> But others aren't, and there's there's a bit of a split there, I think. Um, and so, for example, within the, that that Jacobin issue that was dedicated to entirely to climate change, um, you had a series of articles that, to greater or lesser extent, embraced this sort of modernist perspective, um, and other ones that uh, still encapsulated a very very um, sort of deep ecology, green perspective, or I mean, just in the middle of the, um, the, the 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 magazine, there was a series of infographics, uh, basically popularizing Mark Jacobs, Stanford um, uh, um, environmental um, uh, engineer, uh, Mark Jacobson's uh, work on 100% renewables, which has been thoroughly debunked, um, and. Uh, you know, Mark Jacobson now is actually uh, suing people who have debunked him, which really is challenging to the very idea of how, how science science advances, which is supposed to be, you know, in, in the lab and not in the courtroom. Um, but so, Mark, the, you know, the fall of Mark Jacobson had happened many months before this this uh, this this edition of the magazine came out, and yet that was still still there, seemingly unaware that. Uh, um, uh, the science had moved on, um, and at the same time, there are other people who have who wrote in that wrote in that uh, that edition that um, very much don't like some of the other arguments. Don't like, in fact, don't even particularly don't like me. Um, uh, were horrified at the the sort of the opening of that magazine, which quotes uh, Trotsky in this <laughs> wonderfully poetic. I, love, I cheered at reading that. <laughs> yeah. No, I did too. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, Trotsky basically saying that we can, you know, we can move mountains and uh, that, the, you know, the, the, the earth is a garden for, I mean, I can't remember the exact wording, but, you know, earth is a garden for us to, 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 uh, to prune. And um, um, so it, in terms of peak, uh, peak green, there, there are people who, who are being one to this sort of stuff. Um, even something as sort of fantastical as the fully automated luxury communism discourse that's that's occurring in London, I think, if for all of its you know, academic fantasias, it is at least um, it is a turn away from from this and 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 uh, envir- more environmentally or, or oriented uh, leftists in in the UK, I think. Uh, well, not just think. I mean, I've seen their comments on Twitter and on Facebook that they're horrified at this turn, um, and they, they 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 seem to they feel like that the, the ground has been the rug has been pulled uh, pulled out from underneath them. Uh, in that, where is all this accelerationism coming from? That, um, I do think there's some problems with that uh, that ideology as well. But um, I think you're right, Phil. That that there is something happening there, that there are people in, on the left that are sort of pulling back from this in a confused, uh, confused fashion. Um, I mean, there's, there's aspects of, of that discourse around the universal, universal basic income, which just assumes complete automation of all work. And again, that I think retreats from, um, what well, will one, any sort of historic evidence of what, ha- what has happened with technological change, but also to, uh, from an, you know, the, the labor theory of value. I, I just think it's, um, yeah. And I think a- we, that's, that's something I think we want to come on to in a little bit, actually it might be interesting to, to push that a little bit further moving on from environmentalism, but to, to kind of stick on the, on the question of peak green. I mean, firstly, I did, George, did you want to come in and, and, and ask something or. Yeah, so I had, I guess, I had a question which touches on what you were talking about um, around snark and organic carrot plants. Um, <laughs> so I guess there's there's a an issue here as to how you, I guess, how you make the argument. What what kind of concepts you've you perhaps have found have been particularly um, appealing to people when you're make, trying to make this, um, 
I guess, anti-environmental um, socialist case, because I think the danger is that it can come across as either confrontational or quite sneery um, to sort of say, oh, I, basically, I can't be bothered to recycle, therefore I'm anti-environmentalist. Right. So I, I guess this is possibly a bit of a bit of an open question in, in some ways. Like, how do you win people over to a quite Promethean and, and forward looking and, and positive view of um of a socialism which sees i guess sees nature as something to be conquered rather than subordinated without coming across as as contrarian because it seems like it's still a very um a very small number of people are making this argument i think to some extent i get away with it because uh in some circles i mean i don't want to be i don't want to suggest that the the entirety of the reaction to my book has been bad quite quite the contrary i've had some absolutely lovely lovely responses uh, from people it, and the 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 line that they use on a regular basis is and it's really quite touching it's um you've completely changed my mind or some some variation on that or um i thought um i, I was i was this environmentalist and i thought all these ideas and i've changed my mind completely on, on these as a result of your book which is really quite uh, really quite nice because i always love it myself when I come across an argument, an essay or a book that, you know, completely changes my mind. Um, and I think one of the, the ways, one of the things that's perhaps, perhaps that's helped there is that I do come from, from that, from that world. So, uh, and I, I'm not a, I'm not an apostate. I, I still genuinely believe that, uh, that anthropogenic global warming represents a real challenge to, uh, the ecosystem services upon which human civilization can flourish. It, it, it's, I'm not a, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not dismissive of, of, yeah. of the reality of these concerns. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, that's, that's the quite literally not just in terms of a, an acceptance of these arguments, but I, but I was, you know, I was in Seattle, uh, for the, the battle of Seattle. I, I, I was in Genoa, um, in 2001. I, that's, that's the world that I, I, I come from. Um, uh, one of the, 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 the anecdotes that I start off the book with was in, in 2012, when I was sent by, by nature, the, the science journal to, um, uh, to, to Mexico city to, to write an essay, uh, an essay, write a, a feature article on a series of very strange bombings, uh, of nanotechnology and biotechnology researchers labs that had also occurred uh, to more limited extent in, in Italy and Switzerland by these sort of eco-anarchist extremists. And um, I, I remember sitting down with uh, this woman from the Etcetera Group, which is this very sort of boutique NGO uh, that's critical of, of, mo of, of new, te new emerging technologies. It's a, it's a boutique NGO and that for a few people have heard of it, but they basically do the research that uh, the Greenpeaces and Friends of the Earth um, depend on for their own positions on, uh, say, genetic engineering or synthetic biology or nanotechnology. Um, they they basically were the origin of the anti anti GMO movement, and, and they have offices in Ottawa and Mexico City, and I think Manila in the Philippines. And I remember sitting; I was interviewing. Uh, one of the women from this organization, uh, from the et cetera group in, in Mexico city, Sylvia R uh, Ribeiro on all around her, on her walls were, were these, um, Zapatista posters. You know, <laughs> I've got Zapatista posters on my walls. And I just, uh, you know, she wasn't, she was very clear to say that she did not, um, defend the, the violence of, 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 of these, these eco extremists, but, um, these eco extremists were using her 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 organization's work to uh, as as rationale for what they were doing, and if any anything, uh, they were just following her arguments or her organization's arguments to their logical conclusion. If genetic engineering really was uh, so profoundly destructive of life on Earth, then you know. In the same way that the uh, the French resistance were legitimate legitimated in, in their their the bombing of of, of Nazi um, uh, you know uh, uh, railroads and you know potentially there was some legitimacy to 
to these these eco extremists. Yeah. They were just following the argument to the logical conclusion. And I just thought, how did we get here? What went wrong with the left that here's somebody who I can agree with on so many issues? You know, the the, the Zapatista posters on the wall. I think this is this is me. This is my comrade. Mm -hmm. But the position is just so backward, so anti-modernist, so anti-technology, um, and anti-science ultimately, which is such a retreat from the origins of the Enlightenment, uh, you know, which, which in turn is sort of the origins of the left. Yeah. Uh, I, just, I just then sort of reflect, began to reflect on, well, what has gone wrong? And I think part of, so when I take people through that story, I'm basically tell, and telling them <clears throat> sort of experiences I had at university and in the anti-globalization movement and so on and so forth. I, I'm situ hopefully situating these people in in my own history and showing that I'm I'm not uh, I'm neither an apostate nor am I some external critic. I'm trying to, as 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 they might say, make an imminent critique of um, of environmentalism. No, and I, th I think that comes across really well, and 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 it does add a, a hell of a lot of credibility also to the arguments themselves. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I think to kind of zoom out a little bit and and kind of talk again a little bit about the question of, of peak green or, you know, whether whether that moment of the 90s and 2000s has sort of passed would be another way of looking at it would be to look at kind of, I guess, what's called post-material values in a broader sense. Um, and that whether we're there's a kind of a, a reacquaintance with with materialism uh, nowadays. So I was going to so I think the way of the way of phrasing this or maybe a different way of looking at it rather than looking at it um, in terms of green ideas on the left would be to look at something which is a, a kind of particular concern of mine which is kind of new forms of capitalist legitimation which is something that I did uh, my own academic research on um, and I think if it felt like certainly in the late 2000s a lot of uh, the forms of, of capitalist legitimation were through things like anti-consumerism or fair trade which is something that I've done a lot of research on um, and at the time, I think a lot of, and I guess a lot of liberals, um, had a, there was a lot of credulousness towards that. So if companies or the government or whoever said, you know, we're we're offsetting um, our carbon emissions, or we're, you know, this new gimmick is actually going to be environmentally friendly or whatever, people kind of bought into that as kind of, you know, as as sort of um, evidence that they care, right? And I mean that that sort of discourse seems quite alien to us now because things are far more cynical i think nowadays or you know the kind of critique of greenwashing has proceeded to such an extent that i don't think anyone would buy um buy into the the, the sort of ideology or the the sort of ideas that that a, a corporation can is you know really environmentally friendly i think things have <clears throat> sort of moved on um from that um so i mean do you how do you kind of interpret that i think you know do you agree that there's that sort of certain post-materialist ideas have less appeal today, um, and that also that that maybe that capitalists themselves haven't have have lost that as a try as a means of legitimating themselves. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I would push back a little bit against this idea of Pete Green um, that that it's um, uh, this sort of ideology is 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 on the retreat. Um, I mean, if if anything, I think it just it's it's become it's developed since. Uh, since that period, since the early 2000s, mid 2000s, um, greenwashing certainly doesn't um, doesn't ha has has a lot uh, less purchase, both on the popular imagination and as as you suggested, sort of corporate and, and elite credulity. But then look at um, Elon Musk's hucksterism around uh, Tesla and um, uh, Solar City. Uh, there's a lot of a, a lot of uh, uh, decision maker belief that what he's doing is, is is going to solve the problems of intermittency, but it it, it can't uh, it, um, for for a range of for a range of different reasons. Um, his batteries, you know, battery technology can't can't store energy for longer than about you know ten hours, about the length of time, even however big. Your batteries that you're you're building, you're still going to face a challenge of delivering uh, electricity uh, storage over weeks, months, seasonal uh, seasonal periods. And on the flip side of, of this, I do think that there is 
I mean, I find it amusing that um, people like John Bellamy Foster and uh, his co-thinkers have identified eco-modernism as a sort of liberal eco-modernism as, a, as some new apologetic for corporate, uh, for corporations, for, for capitalism, when in fact, um, it's, it's a liberal left uh, politic. And it, um, I think there, I have great sympathy for a lot of its, its arguments, but it also necessarily leans upon a, a massive build-out of clean energy infrastructure, basically nuclear power, and the transmission lines to support uh, that additional build-out. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a nation-building task. That's a, that's a scale of build-out costing potentially trillions of dollars globally. That's not something that I think the, the, the current Austerian state is, is, is capable of doing. Um, but also, you know, social democracy, I don't think is capable of doing either at the moment. There's a there's a very limited limited window of policy um, opportunity in a globalized economy, um, and um, it, it, it's, it's a, that that that's a classical New Deal build out of infrastructure. I don't know if it, if that's necessarily even if even though that is what will solve the climate crisis. I don't see. Obviously, that's not something that corporations are perfect would be perfectly happy with, given the the scale of taxation that would be required to 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 build that out. Um, but also, social democracy is 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 limited in its capacity to do this as well. Um, yeah. And I guess that's where that's the point at which uh, there would be the confluence for an argument, um, both for for a socialist argument and one which takes climate change seriously. Um, and and I think I think you're quite convincing on this. I don't see any other way around it. I mean, this is other than a complete retreat, which which as we've discussed would be, you know, end up being sort of primitivist ideas, which you know we shouldn't we should probably dismiss out of hand. Um, I think on the other hand, you know, the the only credible alternative is a, a so, sort of socialist argument, a Promethean socialist argument for um, for the sort of large scale projects necessary to take on the threat of climate change yeah no no absolutely but there is a, a, a um there's a there's a real limit on, on 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 how that can be how that can be delivered i mean i don't want to bend over uh, bend the stick too much in terms of suggesting that there's no policy opportunity at the national the nation state level left anymore but um on the scale of what is necessary um whether we're talking about climate change in terms of build out of, of clean energy infrastructure, or we're talking about, um, uh, uh, say, nitrogen management, uh, which is related to climate change, but is a set, it, it, uh, but more overlaps with sort of um, 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 uh, agricultural issues and sustainable intensification of agriculture. Um, there needs to be cross border uh, cooperation over these issues, but the the cross border cooperation that we're seeing um, at the moment is modeled on a sort of UN or EU trans um, uh, intergovernmentalism, which is fundamentally undemocratic. Uh, yet we don't have at the same time a, a global democratic state, and so there's this this uh, technocratic, extra democratic fudge um, uh, happening on the on all these sorts of issues, and the. I think the the left has yet to begin to have a proper conversation about um, how we leap over um, um, post post democracy, post uh, the the, the, the um, intergovernmentalism, treaty based uh, govern global governance issues. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really nice way to segue onto the question. Kind of wanted to come on to, which is that um, yeah. which is precisely about you know planning, which is your next book, and I think that's. You know, when when I heard that you were writing this book, I thought, you know, that's great because that's not just that it's a nice follow on from from your collapse porn book, but also that in a that is some a writer putting their money where their mouth is. So you're kind of dismissing these environmental arguments as fundamentally <laughs> ill suited to dealing with the actual environmental problems that we have. So okay, so what do you got? Well, you know, socialized planning. Um, so I'm very excited to, to read it when it does come out. And I thought maybe you could t tell us a little bit of what that argument is. Sure. Okay. So um, uh, it does absolutely build on the first book in the sense that the one of the, the sort of core arguments I make in, in the first book is that the degrowth 
or other sort of Malthusian uh, flavors of, 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 the, of green left misidentify the, the cause of, of the problem. Uh, they identify growth or humanity um, as, as, as the cause of uh, ecological problems. And I, I make the argument that it's actually the market. It's the unplanned nature of the market, that if there, is, there continues to be a, or rather, put it another way, the set of all things that are uh, useful is different from the set of all things that are profitable. Uh, sometimes it overlaps, but but they're distinct. And so there is a range of uh, commodity, well, uh, goods and services that maybe we might like as a society to to be produced, but but aren't being produced. So for the, the, a great example here would be new classes of antibiotic. Um, we're as a society we're we're up against a, a deep crisis of antimicrobial resistance. But uh, just because of the nature of the of the good here, um, a, a medicine that basically solves a problem immediately is less significantly less profitable than a medicine that is offered to people with a chronic illness that um, for which they have to purchase medicines um, that they use every day potentially for the rest of their lives. Um, that so that product, that potential product, new classes of antibiotic. Um, we're having enormous difficulty in, in developing, uh, and uh, everybody from the, the heads of the, the NIH to uh, you know, uh, um, uh, governmental science advisors will identify uh, the market as effectively the problem here. Now, their solution is trying to figure out some new incentive to sort of leap over the market here. But my point is simply that um, things that are uh, not profitable, but that we need, are not, uh, will not be produced. And then on the, conversely, uh, with respect to environmental issues, there are a range of, of commodity uh, goods and services that may not be useful, i.e. produce some problem uh, with respect to, let's say, environmental issues, or it could be any other, uh, 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 any other subject. Uh, but so long as they continue to be profitable, let's say like fossil fuels, they will continue to be produced without some sort of intervention, some planning, some non-market mechanism. Um, and, and so in my book, my first book, I'm basically saying it's not growth, it's the market that's the problem. It's, it's, it's the market, stupid. And so the second book, I, I take that further and I begin to have a conversation about uh, planning. Uh, well, me and my, my co-author, uh, Michal Rosworski, who's a, a Canadian uh, Polish um, economist, and we we take Frederick Jameson's sort of throwaway quip that uh, is 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 Walmart a utopia? It's this huge corporation and it engaged internally. It may be sorry externally engaged in market uh, 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 market interactions, but internally, it's it's an entirely planned economy. And so we, we you know this is throwaway comment of his in, a, in an essay, and we we go and we actually look at that. So we we went and read. Uh, operations research papers, business uh, business research papers, and 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 experts on on Walmart, and then we did the same for Sears and Amazon, um, and then we all and 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 sort of draw that out and actually ask, well, what happened there? And um, that we do it. We also do this with the NHS, um, with um, a history of planning with God's plan with planning or rather market socialism within Yugoslavia as a sort of counterexample. And our argument is effective and sort of index funds and how index funds effectively are socializing um, investment. Um, and we make the argument that uh, planning is actually all around us. It, it may not. And we, but at the same time that planning should not be seen as uh, a, as equivalent to socialism, but that it's a necessary condition for it. That um, in the same way that the Soviet Union, even though it was planned, or, or rather, actually, as we, we talk about it, planning emerges uh, sort of in an ad hoc fashion, um, uh, one cannot say that the Soviet Union, that the, this, this egregious, um, uh, horrific regime was in any way socialist. In the same way that uh, Walmart, it's internally planned, it's the largest uh, company in the world, it, its entire economy is now larger than the Soviet Union was at the height of its economy. Um, it, even though it's internally planned, it's, it's hierarchically planned. And so again, we can't just say this, well, Walmart is socialist. 
But then the argument now begins to be um, a move away from planning versus the market towards democracy versus lack of democracy. And, yeah. uh, and, and that's actually the heart of of the socialist argument. No, and that's really interesting because, I mean, it, it, of course, this is the, the this planning question is something that's there in, in Marx and Engels already. Um, them saying that the the counter argument against the anarchy of the market is already present in our days. You know, for them, you know, right in the eighteen sixties, um, with the integrated company that that there already is planning. And I think, and yeah. of course, things have proceeded so much in the intervening hundred and fifty plus years um, to the extent that. Corporations span the globe are hugely integrated, and so on, and have you know much greater technical capacities and and yeah. uh, social roles and things that they just do. Um, so you know, socialism already kind of exists in embryo, um, and that and that's. We came across an interesting uh, statistic to find, uh, in, in the course of the research for the book that uh, there's now more um, economic activity that occurs um, in a plant at plant i.e through uh, planning mechanisms behind the closed doors of corporations and or government then uh then occurs through market um, mechanisms wow global, that, which is quite that's quite fantastic something. yeah that's that's a, a fantastic um a fantastic you know statistic and and um and also yeah, really shows i think the the importance of i think of the, of the book that you're writing of actually just broadly of having this discussion of, of planning i mean another thing that's brought to mind especially with your reference to not market versus planning, but of democracy versus uh, versus a more authoritarian structure, is that when I've had arguments, with, occasionally even with kind of more free market-leaning types, that when I've made this argument about planning, they're even willing to accept it as far as it goes. But then the argument is, ah, but if you have a, a workers' cooperative or any form of sort of democratic planning, the problem is workers aren't going to work because they're going to be lazy. And so yeah, their yeah. defense of capitalism ends up being not about uh, the fact that capitalism is innovative or that it creates freedom, you know, market-based freedom, but that it that at least you're free to choose where you want to work and so on. Their argument for capitalism actually becomes one for discipline, that only with capitalism can you discipline workers to work and therefore have the levels of production necessary, um, which is a real inversion of kind of classic liberalism, which, which premised its arguments on, on freedom, not on discipline. Yeah, you, well, you you spot this uh, it, it, um, the, you know, the dark heart of libertarian um, uh, politics it, it, it emerges every now and then. So you know, Hayek was was unapologetic about his his contempt for democracy and that um, uh, that basically that uh, uh, ordinary people just cannot have they 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 don't have the mental capacity to to. Uh, to engage in the planning, um, it has to, the society has to be led by good men, um, and that the market allows that to happen. And he's openly dismissive of democracy. Now, um, that's the the sort of uh, the, the historic argument. And it, uh, but it was interesting a f um, few weeks ago. There was the there was a debate organized uh, between um, uh, Jacobin and Reason magazine, the liber the American libertarian magazine. Which I loved. I thought it was a really great, great debate. And at yeah. one point, very early on, um, uh, what's his name, Nick Gillespie, the editor of of, of Reason or the online editor of Le of Reason, said uh, that he's not in favor of democracy. Democracy is is a terrible, uh, terrible idea. And what we basically have to recognize is that libertarianism is not liberal it isn't liberal it is it is it is this abandonment of this belief in of, of humanism of this belief in ordinary people that, that uh, sailor james's line uh, any cook can govern it isn't that it yeah. is it is it is much of a retreat as much of an anti-humanist misanthropic retreat from uh, liberalism as as the environmental um, uh, view uh, that you know humanity is a is a virus, a, uh, a scourge on the earth. Totally no, and I and I think I mean I've long thought that libertarianism is fundamentally an unstable ideology because it eventually either devolves into some form of conservatism, as you've just described, or transforms into socialism or some variant of anarchism. Uh, I don't think you can really be a libertarianism libertarian for very long. Eventually, you know. Yeah. The contradictions yeah. of that position become exposed. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. You either flip. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You either uh, flip over into uh, unapologetic conservatism, i.e., uh, 
a, a belief a belief in elitist uh, an elitist uh, perspective that some men are better than other men, or clinging to your humanism, you flip over into to, to anarchy, yeah. anarchism. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Unfortunately, that's going to be a good place to end it on because I think we could carry on for hours talking about these issues and more. Um, and we'll have to have you on again, Lee, because you've been fantastic. Um, maybe near to when the planning book comes out to discuss that stuff again in a little bit more depth. For listeners, we're going to be pursuing these topics uh, even more in the future. We need to do uh, a proper thing on UBI, go into that in depth, um, and return to these questions of modernism and technology in the future. Thanks very much again, Lee. That was brilliant. Uh, It's goodbye from me, Alex, Phil, and George. And uh, join us again in a week's time to talk about the politics of South Africa and what's going on there. Uh, Catch you later. Bye-bye.